0: The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears.
1: I'm Steve Allman.
0: I'm Cheryl Strade.
1: This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear soul, won't you please share some bitter sweetness?
0: Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So we're back with part two of our episode we're calling The Empty Chair. And that is about a family member who's missing, particularly a child who dies young. And there's an enormous fallout about that in the whole family system. Today, we're going to explore this situation from the perspective of the parents. Uh, If you haven't heard part one, listeners, please go back and 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 find that episode in which we considered letters from siblings who were in that situation.
1: Right. Uh, what happens when I read letters like this, Cheryl, and maybe you feel the same way as uh, a parent, is uh, it's really almost too enormous and, and frightening to look at. Uh, I thought at first of the Raymond Carver story, A Small Good Thing. Mm, um, which, one of my
0: favorite short stories.
1: Right. I, I just want to read a little bit of it, um, And and really, I thought of it, I think, also because That's In the story, a a child is hit by a car uh, and seems all right at first and and then goes into the hospital and it gets worse and and worse and um, the child dies. uh, And the the parents are utterly um, almost disembodied by their shock. I just want to read one paragraph that kind of speaks to the way that all of us walk around uh, who are parents in in a state of um, sort of secret dread. Uh, that an event like this would uh, visit us. This is the father in the story driving back from the hospital. Um, His son is alive, appears to be in a coma, and it's not clear what's going to happen. And Raymond Carver writes, Until now, his life had gone smoothly and to his satisfaction. College, marriage, another year of college for the advanced degree in business, a junior partnership in an investment firm, fatherhood. He was happy and so far lucky. He knew that. His parents were still living. His brothers and sisters were established. His friends from college had gone out to take their places in the world. So far, he had kept away from any real harm from those forces he knew existed and that could cripple or bring down a man if the luck went bad, if things suddenly turned. Right. When I thought about other books where um, they're trying to take on the death of a young child, I actually thought about Lincoln in the Bardo, the, the new novel by our pal George Saunders. And I also thought about The Lovely Bones, Alice Siebold's novel of right. some years ago. And those both were magical in a sense. Mm-hmm. Joan Didion says it like this, mourners think like small children. Um, and both of those novels are magical realism in mm-hmm. a way. Because uh, in a sense, the death of a child, especially a young child, is so entirely senseless that the rational mind just can't do anything with it. We have to, as Didion says, think like small children in order to make sense of it.
0: Yeah. So we're going to delve into that today. Why don't I read the first letter, Steve? Okay. Dear Sugars, two years ago, my beautiful nine-year-old boy died unexpectedly. On Saturday, he played two hockey games and tried out for spring baseball. And on Sunday, his airway suddenly closed, and within minutes, our lives changed forever. In facing the unimaginable, my husband, daughter, and I have been loved up every step of the way. We have an amazing community, supportive family, and a rich spiritual life. All these things have given us the space and grace we've needed to begin to heal. Given the devastating loss we've faced, we're surviving, and in many ways, thriving. About a year after our son's death, my husband begged me to have another child. I thought he was insane— But eventually, I was persuaded, and I've fallen completely in love with the little boy we brought into the world three months ago. He will never replace the son we lost, but he has replaced so much of the sadness. He's right by my side as I write this, cooing and gurgling and being a miracle in every way. And yet, I'm still in such pain. I feel true delight in my baby. My love for him feels pure, unique. I feel fully present to him. But as I hold my living baby boy, I feel that I'm nursing twins. Grief on the left side, joy on the right. Mm. So, my question is this Will happiness always be complicated for me? On the most joyful of future days, my daughter's graduation, her wedding, our 50th anniversary, will I still be plagued with this gut wrenching, deep longing for the son I lost? And what have I really done in bringing another baby into this world? Will the origin of his life story always be the child born after the death of a sibling? Will he know our true amazement of his individuality, or always feel he grew up in the shadow of sorrow? And one more question. Can a person collapse from spiritual growth? I'm overwhelmed by the profound, poignant moments of my daily life as I make sense of my son's loss. Standing in the grocery store aisle... Lingering over a sugary cereal he would have begged for me to buy, hugging his friends for a few seconds too long when they come over to visit his room and play with his toys, having to explain to our daughter why we chose cremation when she randomly asks in the middle of doing homework. I've worked hard to stay present for these moments, to surrender to what I can't control, to ask for help, to lean into my marriage, to embrace the deeper lessons of life, but I'm spiritually exhausted, burnt out, for meaningful moments. I know I'm a deeper, more compassionate person because of the tragic loss I've experienced. But on most days, I'd trade it all just to be shallow and petty and able to hold my sweet boy one more time. Will I ever be whole again? Signed, Mama with Complicated Joy.
1: Mama with Complicated Joy. Your letter is what it feels like to be whole.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, I think... One of the most moving lines to me, I mean, certainly, Mama, you are whole, but will happiness always be complicated for me? And I think that that's the hardest thing for anyone who's had something truly terrible happen to them, right is that we realize that we were before, without even knowing it, in a kind of innocent wonderland of, right. of uncomplicated joy, right And I think the answer to that is is, yeah. Happiness will always be complicated, but you know that complication will change over time. Yeah. And right now, it feels conflicted—like I'm sad, but I'm happy. Right. And maybe someday, you know, at that fiftieth wedding anniversary of yours, Mama, maybe it will be a deeper joy than you ever imagined. And and part of that depth is about grief and sorrow and knowing the weight of that in your life. Um, knowing that those things ultimately contributed to joy, we don't know. But I will say, I do. I do. I think, yeah. I think it always will be complicated. Uh,
1: m- Mama, I think you. You know, you ask this brilliant question about, you know, uh, is my second son, my three-month-old son, going to grow up in the shadow of, of sorrow? And please listen to our episode from last week because uh, both of those letters. We're we're grappling with that question of our loyalty to grief and one mother who was so devoted to that grief and so fixated on the death of that child that she was ignoring her living children and another family that just tried to power through and in some ways made the death of that child an erasure Uh and it was damaging to the sibling. From your letter, it sounds like you're experiencing everything that you should be experiencing and it sucks Uh that it includes so much pain.
0: Well, and and I do think they're two years out from this huge loss, Mama. And in those two years, you've had a pregnancy and a child and now a newborn. Of course, you're exhausted. There's so many things going on for you in every level, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And so, you know, I think that you have every right to be exhausted at this point, you know, that, it, that uh, enough with the meaningful moments. Your life has been full of them. And, you know, when we think about, as Steve references, those parents um, who our letter writers wrote about in our last episode, both letter writers concluded that their parents did the best they could. And I think that is all we can ask of our parents. One grieved too much, one grieved too little. I think that the the only thing you can do, Mama, is to be awake to what you're feeling and to the complexity of feeling both joy and sorrow at the same time. I think that this is the beginning of a really long journey for you. You know, Steve, when I read this letter from Mama with Complicated Joy, my friend yeah. Emily Rap Black came to mind because she had a, a similar experience. Her Her son died, and not too long after that, her daughter was born. Mm-hmm. And I've watched as her friend as, you know, she's grieving and also celebrating right. the joy of, of a new child. And so I, I thought we should give her a call. She's an amazing writer and human She's the author of the memoir, Poster Child, and the New York Times bestseller, The Still Point of the Turning World. Her work has appeared in Vogue, Salon, Slate, and the New York Times, and many other publications. Her next book, Sanctuary, explores building a new life after tragedy and is forthcoming in 2018. Let's give her a call. Let's do it. Hello? Hi, Emily. It's Cheryl Strait. How are you?
2: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm great. Steve Almond is here with me, too.
1: Hi. Hi. So, Emily, we uh, have talked a little bit, Cheryl and I, about the letter from Mama with Complicated Joy, but we're even more interested to hear what you made of the letter.
0: And and maybe we should start. Can you tell us your story?
2: Yes. So I had a son, uh, Ronan, who was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease uh, when he was nine months old in January 2011. Tay-Sachs is... um, an incurable, impossible, medieval, ridiculous disease that kills kids before they're three, unless you know complicated medical interventions are um, used. And so, obviously, that was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and a huge nightmare.
0: Right. And you, so after Ronan died, he, he did he live about two years after yeah he was two and a half, and then you now have a daughter. And how much later was your daughter born after Ronan's death? So
2: Ronan died in February of 2013, and she yeah. was born in March of 2014. Wow. Right. So, so very quickly. And partly that was because I, of my age, I was like, okay, this is going to happen or not. Um, and I think actually when Ronan was diagnosed, straight away I wanted to have another child, actually. It was the first thing that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I responded to that, uh, one of the letter writers, her husband was saying that he wanted to have another baby really badly. And I think a lot of people experience that it's like, you're given this, this situation and you, what you want to create that is life. It's just sort mm-hmm. of like kicking back at the unfairness of it in some sense.
0: No, yeah, this line, mama with complicated joy says he's right by my side as I write this, he's cooing and gurgling, but she feels like she's nursing twins, grief on the left side, joy yeah. on the right. I'm Great. curious if you can talk about that. I, it's It's been interesting as your friend to watch, you know, you grieving Ronan while also, you know, the beautiful pictures of your daughter on social media and just all of that uh, celebration and joy. Right.
2: I'm actually writing about this in my next book because I, it is a very strange place to be. It's sort of like living in two lives at one time sort of standing mm-hmm. in this doorway between like grief and happiness. And in some sense we're doing that all the time, I think, yes. because we, we do know that chaos can hit us at any moment. But when, when something like this happens to you and you lose a child and have a child, you really see it clearly, right? The precariousness of all of it. Um, so I, I have an image that I think of it's, um, when I was in Jerusalem, I don't know, 10 years ago, You know, you can walk down the streets and suddenly there's like a hole in the ground and ruins of like a Roman city or like, oh, look, it's a whole other city. Just we're walking on it. And I sort of feel like that's a little bit what it's like to have a child in the wake of a child loss. is that there's always this other sort of the ruined love or the lost child right underneath what you're doing in your present life. And in that sense, you keep them with you, but you never quite lose the grief and the other issue with that is that when you don't feel grief all the time, then you feel guilt
1: mm-hmm. um, right.
2: because in some ways you think maybe that keeps the the memory alive. So, I mean, it is very strange. I had a, you know, my friend's 10 year old child said to me once, he said, it's really strange that Charlotte wouldn't be here if Ronan hadn't died. He's like, it's a really hard thing to think about. One really sad thing and one really happy thing yeah. dependent on one another. And you know, I was like, "Yeah, you're so right." I'd never really thought about that before. Thanks, ten year old kid. Right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, well, Emily.
0: Emily, what's so interesting <laughs> to me about that is, is this very thing that second, you know, that that next child wouldn't exist if the if the other one hadn't died. And maybe we should actually read our next yep. letter before we dig in because this letter writer mentions this very thing. Steve, why don't you read the letter?
1: I shall. Dear Sugars. My second child, a boy, was born in 1982 with a congenital heart defect. He had surgery on the fourth day of his life, seemed to be doing well, and was home for six weeks. When he was 42 days old, he died suddenly in my arms. An autopsy revealed other defects inside his heart that were undetectable. That technology came five years later. Alan was his name. At the time of his death, my oldest child, John, was two and a half, He's now 37 and has no memory of Alan or the night he died, the emergency squad arriving, friends coming, my profound shock and grief. My husband was out of town and arrived home early in the morning to learn the news. Eighteen months after Alan died, we had another baby, a daughter, Sarah, who is now 33. We kept Alan's picture on our fireplace mantle along with the photos of the other two children and explained to her who he was as soon as she was old enough to understand. She always spoke of him as my baby brother that died. After Sarah was born, John's preschool teachers, to whom I will always be grateful, told us they thought he was depressed. Their comments confirmed what I had observed, though I didn't have language to put around it. We worked with a counselor and learned that John felt responsible for Alan's death because of his normal sibling jealousy of him. When Sarah was born and he began having these same jealous thoughts, he spiraled into depression. We assured him nothing was his fault and that his feelings were normal. I even shared, after a sleepless night with Sarah, that I didn't like her at all that morning and wished she could be somebody else's baby for a while, which made him grin and seemed to lift a weight from him. He soon returned to his happy self. I wish we'd known ahead of time to tell him this up front. We thought we'd covered the bases. We told him the baby's sick, but not a kind of sick you or mommy or daddy can get and so forth. But we didn't address the biggest piece of all. It didn't occur to me he'd think he'd made his brother's death happen, even though I myself felt guilty that somehow I'd caused his birth defect in pregnancy. After Sarah was born, I went through a time of stress-related illness and finally admitted that the trauma of Alan's sudden death was still impacting me. I was hyper-vigilant, certain if I let down my guard, Sarah would stop breathing too. Eventually, I was able to move through it But even to this day, I have a permanently embedded panic reaction to either of my adult children possibly being injured or ill or in any kind of danger. I can usually talk myself down pretty quickly, but it will always be with me, I'm certain. I don't have grandchildren yet. I'll be curious to see what triggers might be activated. A deep, dark secret is that I know I would never have had Sarah if Alan had lived. I've never ever written or spoken those words to another soul, but I confess it here because it's a specifically weird guilt that I suspect I'm not alone in carrying. I adore my daughter and cannot imagine my life without her. I have no idea what to do with this guilt. It just is. Signed, Guilty Mother.
0: So Emily, we hear this guilt over and over. Do you feel that?
2: I do. I feel I feel that a lot and I feel that she's absolutely not alone in that. This is something that every woman I know who's had a child that's that's lost and then has another child has felt. Um in a way I feel like my daughter Charlotte is carrying forward his his memory in some way. Um and I don't worry too much about how she'll you know, understand it because we do talk about him with her, right. and we we have frank discussions about death with her. We don't say, "Oh, they went to Jesus" or "they went to other places." We say, "He died." Um, we don't really know what happens, but they're not here in the world anymore.
1: And it's interesting in this letter, guilty mother, that you know you say to your living son to to try to assuage his guilt. I wish that uh, Sarah was, she could be somebody else's baby for a while. And it's Mm -hmm. this beautiful thing that lets lets your son off the hook. And he realizes that his feelings of guilt and, you know, his forbidden wish, maybe that, you know, sibling jealousy, make that baby go away. But what's interesting is that really by a certain kind of childlike logic, you know, you wish that you had a daughter that didn't come into the world because a son was lost to you.
2: Right. Yeah. I also think when she says that the guilt just is um, I think that's a beautiful line. I mean, there's, it's almost like there's no way, there's no way to unpack it. And that's a kind of child's logic too. It's like not a failing. Um, It's not a, a, you know, a flaw. It's just the way it is. And I think too, well part of it I think has to do with um, the taboos around talking about children who died. And what I would also suggest to her is that, you know, say your kid's name as many times as you want, like all the time, like talk about, talk about him at yeah. Um, yeah, dinner parties. And it makes people uncomfortable. Who cares? Not that, you know, not your problem if they're uncomfortable with it. Like I bring up Ronan all the time and I know sometimes people are like, Oh, when are you going to get over it? Or like, stop talking about him. And no, um, right. it makes me actually, that lessens the guilt for me to, to tell a story about him.
1: It's so fascinating. Cause as I read these letters, I was thinking about The Lovely Bones, and I was I was thinking about this specific line, um, and I sort of wanted to say it to the letter writers, and I think, Emily, you said it even more beautifully from your own experience, but she writes in that in that novel, it's told from the point of view of the child who's died, and what the child is really trying to do, basically, is let her family off the hook. She says this, Each time I told my story, I lost a bit, the smallest drop of pain. It was that day that I knew I wanted to tell the story of my family. I feel like you know the the problem is that we feel like somehow we we have to you know grieve and mourn and then we're done with it and we close that door and you know it's it's a different life. The border between life and death is permeable. It's yeah. not, uh, and and that's why I think that novel resonates. She, she writes a little later on. I still sneak away to watch my family sometimes. I can't help it, and sometimes they still think of me they can't help it.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think I, there's a quote by the writer Joy Williams, which is, I'm not going to do verbatim, I don't think, but just, it reminded me of something that she wrote was that the, the dead walk among the living and that's the resurrection. Like that's that was a line from something wow. that she wrote. And I love that. It's like, that's yeah. so true. It's like, it's, they're always around, either, whether they're dark matter or spirits or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. You know, that's like the complicated fabric of of how we move through the world too is through and with them
0: right i guess you know what i hope you're hearing us say both of these letter writers is we see you we hear you and yes your joy will always be complicated because joy is complicated back and we're talking to Emily Rapp Black. So Emily, one thing that that came up, I think especially uh, last week on that episode where we were hearing from the siblings, how these anniversaries of the death of the sibling are handled or right. holidays. Right. Some of the the living siblings would say things like either the parent ignored the grief and pretended that that, that sibling was had never really existed or or you know, tried not to address it. And then in other cases, there was a parent who maybe uh, expressed that sort of presence and that grief too much. Yeah. And so I'm curious how you, what your thoughts are on that and how what you do and what you plan to do throughout Charlotte's upbringing on um, the holidays and so forth.
2: Yeah, I mean, I get really sad around Ronan's death anniversary and sometimes around his birthday. And she's just now sort of getting to the point where she notices if I'm sad. Like, she notices that I'm an actual other person, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
1: feelings, right? <laughs>
2: Okay, it took me to, like, 25 to realize my mom was, like, another person. Exactly. Um, so so I think what I say is, like, if I'm feeling sad, I don't try to hide it. But I say, listen, Mommy's feeling sad because because Ronan's not here and she wishes that you could meet him. And, and so I said, there's nothing to worry about. And I love you. And we're going to have a fun day. And, you know, that kind of stuff. Like
0: right. I right. try
2: not to let her see any. And I don't really do this anymore, like, hysterical sobbing. But, um, but I also don't try to hide it. Right. I just think it's important to communicate to your kid, like you know, the complication of your feelings. Like, don't try to simplify it. Just
1: right. tell the truth. Right. right, right. It's like you know, as you think about it, you're you're talking a lot about, um, you know, really w- what it is to be parenting and how losing a child affected your parenting. It's like I think of it this way: your job as a parent is to reveal who you are to your children. Yeah. And and when you're sad, you come by that sadness honestly. And you have to share that with your child because they're going to pick up on it either way. You can either be upfront with them and tell them the yep. story and give them a reason, or you can conceal it and they get confused and guilty and think it's their fault.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just want Charlotte, like my dream would be for her to say, you know, my mom went through a lot of things in her life. She wasn't perfect, but she always talked to me about it and she always worked on it.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. That, and that part of who you are as her mom is that you lost your son.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Emily, Charlotte is your daughter. Charlotte is a, is she three or four now?
2: She's three and a half.
0: Three and a half, and so obviously, too young probably to have expressed a whole lot about her ideas about you know having a, a brother who's dead. But has she, sh- you know, what has she said to you about well, we, Ronan?
2: We have pictures of him in the house, and we we talk about him to her, and she she said, you know, Ronan is still here but his his body's not. Mm-hmm, and I'm yeah. like, okay, that seems like a fair enough assessment. <laughs> um I've I've given away a lot of his things, but uh I have a couple of his toys that I couldn't part with and one of them is this like little stuffed dragon and whenever I bring it out she's like, Oh, she makes that noise. Ronie's dragon <laughs> So So she's sort of, you know, who knows how it's kind of computing in her little sponge brain, but um I I do think she, she understands it in some respect and I'm sure that will shift and change.
0: Mm -hmm. What about this spiritual exhaustion that mama with complicated joy mentions, you know, Mm -hmm. these meaningful moments that she's just like enough with it.
2: So when I read that letter, it really reminded me of some of the conversations that I've had with women in the um, community of terminally ill children. And, you know, one of the quotes I'm thinking of is from a woman called Sharon Hoffman, who lost her son to tay I think maybe 15 years ago. And she said, you know, people kept telling me to live every day as if it were my last with him, you know, to soak up every moment. She's like, but that's an absolutely exhausting way to live. Yeah. Um, there's just no way to sustain that. It's just too much dread, too much joy. It's, everything is intensified. Right it's hard to sort of feel like you're constantly being stretched. And I mean, I guess my solution to that is um, to sort of exactly what she's sort of already talking about is to say like, um, maybe it's always going to be this way some days, maybe it's not. And to sort of not have to, say, one is worse or better than the other. I mean, some days you're going to feel it really acutely. And everyone knows this about grief, right? It Mm -hmm. sort of bites you when you least expect it. You're like, orange juice carton. And then you're like, weeping. You're like, why am I crying?
0: Right. Um, in the grocery store remembering her son begging for, yeah, Yeah.
2: like this is something that he would have wanted. And then other times there will be like what you'd think would be a major trigger, like maybe seeing a kid that would have been the same age, you know, and feeling nothing. Uh-huh. And it's just like you, there's no way to know how your heart will respond to those things, and both things are okay.
0: I remember one time, Emily, um, when you and I saw each other, and Ronan was alive but but sick, and we were at a conference, but we didn't see each other at the conference. We were like off site. Remember, we were in Chicago, and I remember why. I mean, and I'll remember. I'll tell you what I remember you telling me you, you didn't want to go to the conference. Because you felt like you were wearing, you said, a T-shirt that says in bold print, I'm the one whose baby is dying yeah. or something like right. that. Do you remember yeah. that?
2: Oh, yeah. I, I can't remember that. I can't remember anything I said during that time, but I imagine that I would have said that. It's actually yeah, a, and, kind of a good thing to say. It's, it totally feels true. And and you were right.
0: I mean, yeah. you were right. And, and, right. and not because people would look at you. I mean, they would look at you with compassion because you were the one whose baby was dying. Right. Right. And I think that Mama with Complicated Joy... I think part of your spiritual exhaustion right. is that everywhere you go, people are like, that's the woman whose son suddenly died and now yeah. she has a baby. I mean, right. and it, that's exhausting.
1: Yep.
2: Totally. And what you kind of want someone to do is punch you in the face, <laughs> which sounds strange, but I just, the compassion, like the softness, I like, couldn't take it in, yeah. in big groups. I just wanted some kind of hard edge and I wanted like a feeling I had on the inside to match the outside, which would have been, you know, big punched and, I did feel a lot of social pressure, like performance pressure, to be a particular kind of grieving person, Um, like the sad mother, or, you know, if I was too happy, I felt like people were watching me. Like if I had a happy moment, like how could she be happy when her kid is dying? And then I'd be like, how can I be happy when my kid is dying? I mean, it's really complicated.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's, you know, to, to address the other letter, guilty mom who says, I feel guilty about the way that I grieved. I feel guilty. I didn't see John uh suffering, that I didn't realize that he would feel responsible for his sibling's death. And what I want to say, and I want to hear what you have to say too, Emily, to her about this guilt, is it you did beautifully. Yeah. I mean, exactly you, you had a terrible loss, and you had to also help your your living son through that loss. And I yeah. think you did a beautiful job. And yes, he had his own. Experience, he had his own reaction to it, and you know, you can't prevent other people from feeling what they feel, and that was his feeling, that was his experience. He's come out okay, right?
2: She survived,
0: that's right. You know, I
2: mean, I feel that's like you know, I have um, you, you, you know, Rachel Cheryl, Rachel DeWaskin, our friend who's a writer, and
0: our dear friend, I remember
2: she came to Ronan's Memorial when. Um, my husband and I lived in this church, like literally a church. And I remember watching her like walk up, walk, and she was holding a coffee and she looked like immaculate as she always does. And she walked in and she looked at me and she said, you did it. (laughs) And I was like, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Yeah, I just didn't know it until she said it. Right. I was just like, I survived it. Like I didn't kill anybody. I didn't kill myself. Right. I didn't, I didn't. You know, I did it. Like I helped my kid die. Like, and now I'm I'm gonna live again. I'm gonna do it. Like, and I don't mean to sound like you know suddenly it's a it's an inspirational speech and like we're all gonna run marathons. That's not it. It's just that I felt like I was on the other side of it, and now there was new work and challenge. But that part was over.
0: Absolutely, Emily. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast to talk about this. Bye, uh, thank you. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Argo Studios in New York City with Paul Ruest. Our mix engineer is Josh Rogerson. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss and other music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Find us, please, at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send your letters to us at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. And if you want to read the column every week, we answer an additional letter on the topic that we've discussed on the podcast, you can find that at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. That's on Tuesdays and on Thursdays in the style section.